Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Allow me to welcome you to part two of Living in the Light of Christ, which I believe is a very timely and relevant theme for the times we are living in, and I do hope that it will guide and govern us as we work through there as a church, that ours or our highest priority will be to pursue God who is light and to run away from every form of darkness possible as God enables us. Last Sunday we opened Isaiah chapter 9 where we read the first seven verses and I would like to read them again, but this time with a special focus on verses 6 and 7. So if you do have your Bibles, please open Isaiah chapter 9. We will read the first seven verses. This is the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. As for in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the road of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness, from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And once again, this is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday, as we opened this passage, we explored briefly the background of Isaiah's prophecy, that Isaiah is speaking to a people in great crisis. It is about 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, and all this while Israel has been waiting longingly for the promise of a Messiah who will come and save them. They stand at, a, at the verge of a great war, and in the midst of this war, perhaps they wonder, where is this God who promised to save us? We saw an alliance that had been formed by Israel, which was the northern kingdom, together with Syria, against Judah, which was the southern kingdom. So these two nations have gathered together, and they want to come and remove the king of Judah from his throne and put their puppet king who will do what they want to say. And as you can imagine, 
King Ahaz and his people are very scared and shaken. In fact, Isaiah describes them that their hearts were like as though they were trees blown by the wind. They are very scared. They are worried about the future. They do not know what to do. And what is in King Ahaz's mind? He wants to call upon Assyria, which was a great nation at this time, to come and help him defeat these two nations. At this time, the prophet Isaiah comes to his palace and says, King Ahaz, relax, take heart. The God of Israel, who made his promise to his people, has not changed. He is still on the throne. He will fight for you, and with your very eyes you will see these two nations that have ganged up on you, judged severely by God, seriously beaten down by Assyria. All you need is just to trust the Lord. Now, does King Ahaz trust the Lord? Unfortunately, no. Where does he find his protection? He calls upon the nation of Assyria, a Gentile nation. And he not only calls them to help them, but he pays them with the silver and gold vessels that were in the house of the Lord. Holy vessels dedicated to the God of Israel are given to a Gentile nation to seek protection from these two nations. And Ahaz will not trust the Lord of heaven to protect him. Even when he knows what God has done in the past, for some reason he does not put his trust in the Lord. And because of his unbelief, God will not only judge the kingdoms that attack him, but God will also judge Judah. At the time that the prophet Isaiah is speaking, he is saying judgment is coming. Judgment is here. It will begin with Syria and the northern kingdom who have attacked God's people in Judah. But the same judgment is coming upon Judah as well. But in this very message again, we see the prophet Isaiah saying, while judgment is coming, grace is coming too. God who has promised to save and secure his people will judge them for their unbelief, but in respect to his covenant and promise, he will also save his people and secure the throne of David because on that very throne one day, a unique king will sit on that throne. His kingdom will be forever. He will establish a reign of peace that is lasting. And basically this is what he describes in the first five verses. And in his description of God's grace, not only does he show that it will come, but he shows that it will triumph over God's judgment. Yes, judgment will come, but yes, grace will come all the more. Praise the Lord. He tells them that on these nations, on these areas where there has been great darkness and great disaster and great gloom, a great light has dawned. And that when the light of God dawns, things will change. He has described for us exactly what will happen in the aftermath of that judgment. That the Lord will increase his people. That the Lord will restore them. That the Lord will break the bar and the rod that was on their shoulders. And that the weapons of warfare will be burned in fire because there will be no need for war. 
When the king who finally brings in everlasting peace has come, the promised Messiah, there will be no need for fear. There will be no need to call upon the help of heathen nations because the king on the throne will establish his rule once for all. And in this passage we saw two things. Number one, we saw the prophet Isaiah proclaiming the good news that a great light has come, a great light has dawned, and because of that, a people living in darkness will no longer be the same again. And we saw last Sunday that the prophet Isaiah's words found fulfillment as we find in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4. That when Jesus begins his ministry, he moves from Nazareth where he was raised up. He goes to Capernaum in Galilee of the Gentiles, exactly according to the prophecy of Isaiah. And there he picked the first disciples. There he began his ministry of healing and restoring the sick. And Matthew, looking at the ministry of Jesus, sums it up saying, this happened in order to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said a long time ago. What is Matthew saying? Not only that God is committed to fulfill his promises, but more importantly, that Jesus is this great light that the prophet Isaiah had spoken about. That for you to get out of the darkness that surrounded the nation of Judah at this time, spiritual, economical, social, physical darkness that engulfed them, there was one way out of the darkness, a great light. And Matthew says, that light was the promised Messiah. That light was Jesus himself. We saw that it's not only Matthew who points to Jesus as being the light, that in John chapter 8, Jesus himself confessed and said, I am the light of the world. Those who believe in me will no longer live in darkness, but more importantly, will receive the light of life. That for those who are in darkness, the good news is that the great light has dawned in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. And those who believe in him no longer walk in darkness, but on the contrary, begin to walk in the light that gives life, life that is eternal. And we saw, unfortunately, that while the great light of the world has come and is among us, not everybody has believed or received the light. John 1.12, he came to his own, but those who were his own did not receive him. But to those who received him, and those who believed in him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Light has come into the world and has dispelled the darkness. But we must remember that there are people who remain in the darkness today because they have not desired to walk in the light. Some have gotten used to the darkness to the extent that light threatens them. It's not a surprise that the very people who were in darkness gathered together around the light of the world and put him on Calvary's cross. They did not want their dark deeds to be exposed. So what did they do? They killed the light of the world. And for three hours we saw darkness on Calvary's cross to signify the rejection of the light of the world but to be reminded that if we extinguish the light, then darkness must continue to reign. But even more importantly, we saw that Jesus is not one that you just extinguish anyhow. After three hours of darkness, the light was on again. Three days later, rather I think there were six hours of darkness, sorry. Yeah, I think there were six hours of darkness from nine to three. So don't quote me on that and call me a false prophet because I forgot that, please. 
But what we are saying is that the darkness could not comprehend the light. Three days later, the grave was opened. The resurrected Jesus was out, never to die anymore. And the same Jesus calls his disciples and he says, Now in my power, when you have received the Spirit of God, you must go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the world, and proclaim what? The light has come into the world, and the darkness could not comprehend it. But now we go back to our verses, verse 6 and 7, where we pick up again. Before we even look at the commentary of the New Testament on this passage, Isaiah himself describes that kind of light. What is this light that has dawned among a people of darkness, that they will be increasing, that there will be war no more, that they will rejoice with the joy that comes at harvest? What kind of light is this? You look at verse 6 and he begins with that connecting word. For. For. The people living in darkness, in gloom, in despair, in disaster, have seen a great light. Because of this great light, they will be set free from their darkness. They will rejoice as that of harvest. Their weapons will be burned in the fire. But why? Is it just because the great light has dawned? Yes, but even much more. For, and in verse 6 to 9, rather to 7, he says, For to us a child is given, rather is born. To us a son is given. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is that this much-needed light that must dispel the darkness has been wrapped by God in a person. That if you want to receive the light that dispels this darkness, you must embrace the person. And more importantly, and paradoxically perhaps, you must embrace a child. You know, one of the wonders of God's salvation is that it comes in ways we least expect, or even our complicated brains would seem to comprehend. That while the world is waiting for a warrior who comes on a war horse with battle weapons and an envoy of angels ready to destroy all enemies of Israel, while the world is looking for the big thing, somewhere in Bethlehem's darkness, a baby is lying in a manger. And the angels come and say, For today in the city of David, a Savior is born. He is Christ the Lord. What? Not a baby is born. Not a child is born. The angels say, no, 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 no. The one born is the Savior you've been waiting for. The one born is Christ the Lord, the Messiah. And that's why they say, for today we bring you good news of great joy. That is for all the people. Unlike the expectations of the world, the Lord brings this great light, this great salvation wrapped into the most unimaginable thing ever, a little baby in Bethlehem's manger. If there is anything that should capture our imagination and wonder as believers, is how salvation comes to us. In the least unexpected of ways. But here we are. Isaiah, 700 years before this could happen, says a child has been born. Please notice he's not saying a child will be born. He says unto us a child is, not will be. He speaks it as though it has already happened. 
And interestingly, after he has used the present perfect tense to describe this child, when he describes his work, now he uses the future tense. A child is born, a son is given, the government will be. That's a very interesting shift. He speaks of the, the promise of the Messiah as though it already is reality and then describes his work as something that is yet to come in the future. And indeed we as believers living 2,000 years away from the birth of Jesus are able to look back and see the two-step the, the two fulfillment of this wonderful prophecy. That yes, the Messiah has come. Yes, Christ is right among us. For 2,000 years, he's been saving people of all kinds, of all races, of all categories. But there is also a sense in which his government has not yet fully been established. There is a sense in which he is not yet fully the prince of peace as we continue to experience war and turmoil and chaos all over the world. If you have been on the news, you can tell that not all is well yet down here on our planet. Because Christ's work is still ongoing and headed towards that consummation. When he will fully and finally sit on his throne. And then we can now say of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. We live in the not yet. We have already experienced some of the benefits of heaven. A foretaste of what it will look like. But we are not yet fully there. The darkness is still around us. And we still need to continue to trust the Lord that he who has fulfilled phase one of these prophecies will surely continue to fulfill them to the very end. When Isaiah presents this child that is born, it is interesting how he presents him. Number one, he presents him as an embodiment of God's grace. As you read these two verses, one of the things that clearly cut through is the reality and wonder of God's grace. Do you notice how the prophet begins it? He says, for to us a child is, is born. Why didn't he just say a child is born, a son is given, and the, the rest and move away? That knowledge of the birth of a child does not help us until we understand that it is being given for us. Isaiah wanted the people of Judah to understand that the whole of God's work of moving events, political, spiritual, economical, to prepare for the birth of a child was for their sake. Was this child being given because the nation of Judah deserved the Messiah? No. Was this child given because these people had even asked for a rescue? No. In Isaiah 7, in fact, when the prophet asks the king Ahazi and says, ask God for a sign that he will deliver you. The prophet, in a hypocritical way, says, I am not fit to ask God anything, so I will not ask. But what does Isaiah say? Even though you have not asked, yet God will give you a sign. A virgin will give birth to a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. It is not even the prayer of Isaiah. He is not praying. It is not the nation of Judah. They are busy seeking the help of their Syrian forces instead of the God of heaven. That Christ comes to us as a demonstration of marvelous grace. Christ comes to us as the gift we have not asked for, as the gift that we do not deserve, as the gift that God sovereignly, graciously gives to each one of us. No wonder the next statement says, a son is given. 
For to us a child is born, a son is what? Who gives the son? God. Remember the famous verse John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The coming of Jesus has nothing to do with your prayer or with your smartness or your, with your human efforts to be righteous. No. Reasons for the Savior are not within you. They are within the heart of God. For God so loved the world. Romans 5.8 For God demonstrates his love in this way. That while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. While we were still, the key word is still, still sinners, dead in our trespasses. Later the apostle Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 2. And he says that for we were dead in our trespasses, unable to help ourselves. But God, who is rich in mercy, that's the reason. Rich in mercy has raised us up with Christ. In verse 8 he says that for it is by grace you have been saved. And this not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. That salvation comes to us as a gift. It is not a result of our works. It's not an effort on our part. It is something that amazes us. Maybe even confuses us. Because we continue to wonder, why would a great God love mere sinful man like you and me? The wonder of the Christian faith is the act of God's grace. That God has intervened in our miserable lives and has given us what we do not deserve. Even though he could have righteously damned us all to the fires of hell. If you are a Christian and God's grace does not marvel you, there is a possibility that you have not understood that grace. Or maybe your heart is yet to be converted. Because that's one of the things that keep you marveling for the rest of your Christian life. Why me, oh God, that you could choose me? This baby comes as an embodiment of God's grace. But also he comes as an embodiment of God's glory. That in the way the prophet describes him, he is going to be a person unlike anyone we have ever seen. First and foremost, he introduces his humanity. And to us, a child is born. He is born humanly. He is born realistically. He is born historically. He is clearly human in every sense of the word. He is born in the lowest weakness you can ever imagine. In Bethlehem's manger, in the dark of a cold night, he is born by ordinary parents. He is born in ordinary life circumstances. That this person who embodies the light that has dawned on the people in darkness is actually human like you and me. That we can talk to him, we can touch him, we can listen to him, we can relate to him, we can know what he loves and what he doesn't because he is in every sense of the word human like you and me. One commentator has written and said that this is absolutely essential to understand the humanity of Jesus because God has determined that he who rules over humanity as humanity's savior must himself be human. That he's going to rule us well, to rule us relevantly, to rule us in a manner that we understand and appreciate. He himself must be human just like we are. 
Very important. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 we read that for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people of God. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he was human. Because he shared our world and our miseries and our darkness. No one understands us well enough to represent us before God like him. If he had only remained God, he would only be knowing of Godhood. And he would not clearly appreciate what we are and what we go through. But Jesus came down among us. He lived our life. We are told he was tempted in every way just like us, yet without sin. There is nothing you can ever challenge Jesus about and say, Jesus, you don't understand. Because whatever you've been through, he's been there and even beyond that. You want to talk about suffering? He knows it. You want to talk about people lying against you? They did. You want to talk about your own friends betraying you? They betrayed him. You want to talk about your own friends doubting you? His own disciples did. You want to talk about trouble and poverty? He never owned anything. So what is it you are going to say and, and intimidate Jesus? To say, Jesus, you don't understand what I'm going through. If only you knew. No, he's been there. He's been there. He understands it all. When you cry, he cries. When you hurt, he hurts. And that's what makes him unique. That this savior, this light of the world must be relating with us. And he must be human. But we also read again that this is a son. He is not just a child, but he is a son. He is not a son who is born biologically. So when we talk about a son, we are not talking about male gender. He is a son who is given. And he is given because he already was before as a child he was born. In other words, Isaiah is describing him as the eternal son of God. The one who had always been with God. In Psalm 2, again a thousand years before even Jesus was born, the psalmist declares, he says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vest. That he is a son that eternally has always been with God. That has been given the kingdom. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is that the person who will bring this great light into the darkness of the world must be divine. He must be of God. Essentially, he must be God as he will describe him later as mighty God. So in the salvation that is coming to a people in darkness is a man who is fully God and fully man, who is of God and who is of humanity, who will bring the much needed light that no one can ever bring into the dark world apart from him. One theologian named John Phillips has said that the great mystery of the manger is that God should be able to translate deity into humanity without either discarding the deity or distorting humanity. When we talk about deity, the word deity, we are really talking about somebody divine. 
somebody who is of God. And he's saying that the great mystery of the birth of Jesus is that in the birth of Jesus, we see God who is divine becoming human without losing his divinity and not distorting humanity. He's not half human or half divine. He's not some divinity and humanity mixed together in some ingredients. No, 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 no. He is fully human. But he is also fully man. And these two natures come together in one person without contradiction. It's a wonder. It's a mystery. And to think that God of all things he could have done to dispel the darkness of the world. He sent us the God man. Itself is reason for us to marvel for the rest of our lives as believers. Another theologian called Lee has explained the saying that Jesus is the only one born with no earthly father but an earthly mother. He had no heavenly mother but a heavenly father. He was older than his mother and as old as his father. Now take a moment and digest that. My friends, that's what we talk about when we talk about so great a salvation that has come to us. You try to put your small head into this and your head will burst, right? No wonder some people who are afraid to think have concluded that this is too good to be true and have concluded that Jesus is a myth. He could not have been there. How do you become older than your own mother? How can you be as old as your father? Is it even possible? But the Bible says yes. When the prophet says a great light has come, that's what he's talking about. It is not the normal light you always knew. It is not a good man or a perfect man who has come to rescue you. It is not the Assyrian Empire with their sophisticated weapons of warfare that will deliver Judah from its predicament. No! It is going to be a unique man. It is going to be a mysterious man. It is going to be a wonder man. A man with an earthly mother and, and no earthly father. A man with a heavenly father and no earthly mother. A man older than his mom. A man as old as his father. His own mom would call him Lord. That's the man we are talking about. That this child embodies the glory of God. But as we look in this passage again, we will learn that this child embodies the greatness of God. And we will see that as Isaiah begins to describe who he is. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And each of these names or characteristics or traits of this name describe a great, great, great person that brings this light in the world. That as you look at his names, all you see is greatness, 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 no matter where you look. So the prophet Isaiah basically is telling us that in this child you will see God's grace. In this child you will see God's glory. In this child you will see God's greatness. And it is these things that really remind us that a great light has dawned to a people living in darkness. And if you really understand that, then you can seriously conclude and say, a great light has come indeed to a people who are walking in darkness. But there are also a number of general things that we could see about this uh, pronouncement. 
That this child does not only embody God's grace, glory, and greatness, but he, the circumstances of his birth, as announced by the prophet, are themselves very peculiar and something to marvel about. Do you notice that his birth is announced 700 years before he is born? Now normally you would think that you give birth to a child and then you say a child has been born. Isn't that what we do? Even when we do baby showers before we do them on faith. Because there is no guarantee that that child might be born. You could have a miscarriage. You could have a problem in the theater and maybe the baby will die. You are having a baby shower, but maybe at that time you don't even know whether it's a male or a female, so you can't see with confidence say we are having a baby shower for a boy. We usually wait for the baby to be born. And that's when we start taking the rumors around, by the way so and so gave birth. Hey, really, what is the child? Baby boy or baby girl? That's when the story begins. But you come to the birth of the Messiah and 700 years before he's born, the prophet knows he's going to be born, the prophet knows he will be a boy. And not just a boy, but he will be a divine son of God. What a way to be born. Very interesting. He's not just born or pronounced to be born 700 years before, but do you notice that his birth from the beginning is a royal birth? That this boy is born as a prince. This boy is born as God. This boy is born as king. Many times when we think about Jesus being the king of kings, probably we are tempted to think that he became king along the way. But do you notice that when the prophets describe the birth of Jesus, or even when the angels pronounce and announce the birth of Jesus, they don't announce a child who will become something. They announce a child who is. Remember the angels' pronouncements to the shepherds in Bethlehem? Today, in the city of David, who? A savior is born. He is Christ the Lord. He is not going to become a savior when he starts his ministry, when he dies. No, no, no. He is born a savior. He is not going to be Christ the Lord along the way. No, 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 no. He is born Christ the Lord. And when Isaiah describes this baby, this child, he describes him with the titles that accompany him right from before his birth. His is a unique birth, a royal one. And number three, the prophet Isaiah describes him by a series of powerful and great names. And then what is surprising, the prophet does not use the plural, by the way. He doesn't say his names will be. Do you notice he says his name will be called? It's not many names, even though Jesus is described by so many names and titles in the scriptures, probably over a thousand ways to that he is described in the New Testament. But the prophet Isaiah says his name, singular, will be called, and then he gives us different characteristics and aspects of his name. In other words, the child before us, the child who brings the light into the world, is indescribable. And because you cannot capture him or who he is or what he will do in one word, he is given different names and each name describes an aspect of his personality, describes the characteristics of who he is, but also of the work that he will do. Clearly, we stand before divinity, we stand before mystery, 
We stand before wonder. We stand before a child that is far above and beyond our comprehension. And the prophet Isaiah is saying, when you look carefully, do you realize that all these names can only be applied of God? Essentially, Isaiah is saying, God himself will come. God himself will save you. So when I, the prophet says, a great light has come. He's not saying a bigger and more powerful nation will save you. He's saying, Judah, look to God. Look to the God of Israel. He's the one who will save you. He is the only one who is the light that needs to dispel the darkness that surrounds you today. Essentially, he's calling them back to the worship of God. Because only a man who fulfills the characteristics of God is able to save his people and to save them completely. If Isaiah was here, he would probably have told the people of our time that the only way to get out of the darkness of this world is to look to God as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. Probably Isaiah would have said that the answer to the darkness of this world is Christmas. Because in the birth of this child, you will find God in the person of Jesus shining brilliantly as the light of the world. The only light that comes into the world and darkness cannot comprehend it. And that's what the Apostle John tells us in chapter 1. That light, light has come into the world and the darkness cannot comprehend it. And what is this light he was talking about? It is the same light he had already called the Word in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. That in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This same word indwelt among us or tabernacled among us. We have seen his grace. We have seen his truth. And he goes further and says, this very one is the light that has come into the world. So what is he saying? That Christmas really is the answer to the darkness of this world. That when you are in trouble, when you are confused, when you are disheartened, look to the one who was born king. Look to the one who was born savior. And he is the answer for your troubles and your problems. And the prophet Isaiah will conclude this passage saying, And I want you to remember that the God whom I serve, his zeal will accomplish this. That God is not just promising that a child has been born, that a son has been given. But the God who has pronounced these things at a moment of great crisis in the darkness you are in, he will surely do it. And 700 years later, we see God in his great power do it. And what does he do? He mobilizes the Roman government to call for a census so that Jesus is born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. God at work. He mobilizes the great emperor of Rome to decree a census, perhaps even for his own selfish motives. But using the darkness in the emperor of the day, God brings about the light that shines in the world and dispels the darkness. We see not only God moving the Roman government, but he moves a great star in heaven, burning so bright to get the attention of the Magi who are living hundreds of miles away from Bethlehem. And these men start, get started on the road. And what is the message they have? They have one question they are asking everybody they meet. Where is the one born king so that we may worship him? 
Even before they saw him, wherever they passed, they proclaimed the gospel. That there was one who was born king. And they had one mission that caused them to leave their places. To come and look for this baby that was born. Why? So that they could worship him. The baby receives worship even before he grows up to begin the, to begin the ministry. He receives worship even before he dies on the cross at Calvary for their sins. These strangers, these magi from a foreign land have a confession that each one of us needs to take a moment and ponder. Where is the one born king so that we may worship him? But God also does not stop on bringing in Gentiles to bear testimony of the Savior. But he also unleashes an army of angels to announce the good news. In that darkness of Bethlehem, in a secluded field where shepherds were gathered taking care of their sheep, perhaps used to the darkness of Bethlehem, unaware that the light has dawned, the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled that night. A great army of angels came and they announced the good news of the Savior born. And they said, because of the birth of this son, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth on who, those to whom the favor of the Lord is upon. The good news of the gospel. But God in his zeal is accomplishing what the prophet Isaiah said 700 years before. He will remove mountains. He will remove valleys. He will remove secular, stubborn, wicked governments. He will bring stars in the sky that have never been seen before. Angels will leave their placements in heaven and come down on earth in Bethlehem's darkness. Because the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And that, my friends, is what we are talking about. That light has come and nothing will ever be the same again. That God has sent this marvelous light in the person of his son Jesus Christ. And as you remember in John 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Those who believe in me will no longer walk in darkness, but will receive the light of life. Friends, that's what we have received. We who have embraced Jesus as our personal Savior and Lord, we have not only left the darkness that we were once chained in, but we now walk in the light of eternal life that Christ our Savior has given us. And even as we continue to live in a dark world that awaits for that government of peace that he will one day usher in, we are not children of darkness even as we walk through this darkness. We are children of the light. And as we learned last Sunday, everywhere we go, the Jesus who has given us the light of life calls us to become the light of the world as well. He has called us to shine in the dark places of this world that by our light, the world in darkness might see the glorious good news of the gospel. The world in darkness might see the great light in Jesus which has dawned. And the light, the world in the darkness might see that light that only truly can save them. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.